Good morning. My name is Dean. I'm one of the pastors at Alpine. So it's great to be with you um, this morning. It's exciting um, to continue this series that we are in on the pursuit. And so we're going to continue that um, this morning. And so far in the Pursuit series, we've learned that God is the one that pursues us, that the Bible is the most reliable source for truth, and that we were made in the image of God. And as a result, we have value. And yet value does not equal perfection. In fact, we can be very far from being perfect. And I find it a little bit ironic that on this weekend, the 4th of July weekend, when we're going to celebrate our freedom in America, we're going to be looking at what makes us not free, what causes destruction, devastation, defeat in our lives, what makes us imperfect. And that is sin. And unfortunately, this word has become more and more criticized by our society to the point that it is seen as a religious relic that needs to be removed completely from our vocabulary so that we can move forward with a progressive society. Today's culture doesn't really buy into sin. Tennessee Williams, a well-known 20th century playwriter and screenwriter, says this, I don't believe in original sin. I don't believe in guilt. I don't believe in villains or heroes. Only right or wrong ways that individuals have taken, not by choice, but by necessity, are by certain still uncomprehended influences in themselves. Don't quite understand that. Their circumstances and their antecedents. I don't understand why our propaganda machines are always trying to teach us, to persuade us, to hate and fear other people on the same little world that we live in. Many people today have that same philosophy. In fact, more and more individuals would say that if you call somebody a sinner, you're guilty of a hate crime against them. Then we have a whole entire other group of individuals that actually envelop the, the term sin, and they see it as something that's good. They flaunt it, and we're familiar with that. We're familiar with Las Vegas and its term Sin City, right? There's a, um, a personal um, financial website called Wallet Hub. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. They must have a lot of time on their hands because they ranked metropolitan areas by their, the most deadly sins. So they looked at some quantifiable metrics for each sin, they measured them, and then they ranked 182 cities by them. And of course, the number one city was Las Vegas. In fact, the article says that America's all-you-can-eat buffet of sins 
might be the most accurate description of the city's appeal in an age of prevalent vice and indulgence. Most notably on that um, article, um, St. Louis was number two. Los Angeles was number four. Probably no big, you know, guesses on that one. But Salt Lake was number 78. We were in the top 50. Um, primarily um, because of the, the deadly sin, we ranked number 17 in jealousy in Salt Lake City. Interesting. Um, the other interesting thing, they didn't have a lot of Utah cities in this, but they did have West Valley. And actually, West Valley did really good. They were 175 out of 182. So, interesting. But if society can argue against the term sin, and that it is a narrow-minded, hateful term, or on the other hand, it can be celebrated as something good, then they can do away with any reason to pursue God. In fact, we see that happening in our society today. The issue is that you can remove the term from our vocabulary, but you cannot remove the behavior from our society. Even if you remove the term, it doesn't change the truth. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. I'd like to ask you, do you love perfectly? And when you don't love perfectly, are you being godly? And when you're not loving, are you not in opposition to God? Are you not missing the mark? Isn't that what sin is? Let's look at a quote from R.C. Sproul. He's a theologian. And this quote deals with sin, but I've put the words lack of love right next to it to show you that it has the same exact meaning. When we sin, when we do not love, we not only commit treason against God, but we also do violence to each other. Lack of love violates people. There is nothing abstract about it. By my sin, lack of love, I hurt human beings. I injure their person. I despoil their goods. I impair their reputation. I rob them from a precious quality of life. I crush their dreams and aspirations for happiness. When I dishonor God, I dishonor all people who bear his image. Is it any wonder then that God takes sin, lack of love, so seriously? You can't get away from it. Whether you call it lack of love, whether you call it desiring something greater than love, John Calvin says that our heart is an idol factory or whether you call it sin, it's our human condition. So since we can't get away from it, let's be honest about it, and let's see what the Bible says about sin in this fourth week of our pursuit. 
So the first thing the Bible says about sin is that sin is going your own way, trusting and acting on your own opinions and feelings instead of on God's truth. I think we're all familiar with Adam and Eve and the events around that story. And this is exactly what happened with them. They acted on their own opinions and feelings, and every man and woman after them has done the same. All the conditions for sin were birthed in the account that's recorded in Genesis. So let's read the Genesis 3 verses. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. All of the conditions for sin were present. They had a freedom to choose. Chapter before, God demonstrated or gave Adam and Eve the, the right to choose. They shared, God had shared a truth with them that was to protect them, but they saw it as restrictive. Their eyes saw what was pleasing to them. They had a chance to be like God, and so they wanted the wisdom. The enemy was present, twisting the truth. And then there was another person there that went along with them. All the conditions of sin, not much different than today. David is another example of one that decided to go his own way, act on his own feelings, instead of relying on God's truth. And you may think I'm going to spend some time with you talking about Uriah and that David had him killed so that he could be with his wife. But I'm not going to talk about that sin. I'm going to talk about David deciding to take a census. A census? <laughs> yeah. Twelve chapters later, we read about David making a decision to take a census. Should be no big deal with that. Moses did it twice. Let's kind of pick up this event, 2 Samuel 24. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the tribes of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, so I may know how many people there are. But Joab replied to the, Lord, to the king, May the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now. But why, my lord the king, do you want to do this? But the king insisted that they take the census. So nine months, 20 days go by. They got the final tabulation. They share it with David. We have 800,000 
valiant warriors in Israel. We have 500,000 valiant warriors in Judah. And then David begins to think that maybe he did something that probably he shouldn't have. Here's his words. But after he had taken the census, David's, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. Well, what was this foolish thing? What was wrong with taking a census? Did God in letters spell out to David that he shouldn't take a census? Not in this particular case. But the sin was that David was trusting more in the numbers than he was in God. God was the one that brings victory, not how many people you have in your army. And so David had sinned because he had put something above God. Sin is going your own way, trusting in your own interests and opinions rather than God's truth. The second thing the Bible says about sin is sin brings brokenness in every way, keeping us from experiencing the fullness of life that God wants for us. What did David's decision about the census bring? Well, God gave him three choices of consequences, if you're familiar with this event. He said, David, you could have seven years of famine. You could have three months of fleeing before your enemies. Or we could do three days of pestilence. What do you want? What was David's decision? Well, let's do the three days. Let's do the three days. I don't want to be put in a position where somebody else is in control and I'm in the hands of man. And so David's decision resulted in this. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. 70,000 people. Consider, if you were David, the brokenness that must have brought upon you. And then, what were the results of David's sin with Uriah? What did it bring? Well, we know it brought the loss of the child, right? But it also brought this. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes in public view. War will never leave David's house. And what's not spoken here is who did this. Who took his wife's in public view? Do you remember? It was his son that he loved, Absalom. 
How much would that break your heart? Just consider that. Sin brings brokenness in every way. What did Tennessee Williams, that we mentioned earlier, decision to trust and act in his own opinions and feelings instead of God's truth bring? Well, in his case, it brought multiple sexual relationships with both women and men. It brought addiction to amphetamines and barbiturates. It brought catatonic depression. It brought being committed to mental hospitals on several occasions. It brought strong hatred for his mother. It brought fear of getting old. And it brought, at the age of 71, his death from swallowing a plastic cap um, that he was taking um, narcotics with. And his body actually was full of toxic from those barbiturates. Sin brings brokenness in every way. It keeps us from experiencing the fullness that God wants us to have. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it full. Make no mistake about it, the enemy wants to break you. Make no mistake about it. But God desires to make you whole. God desires to give you freedom. And that freedom comes by being in Christ, being in God's love, putting others first. You know, when we don't, we follow our own desires and this is the result. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, those are pretty heavy. But the next ones don't sound as heavy, but they're just as heavy. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. None of these provide freedom, do they? It just grows. It just becomes more consuming. I don't think I'm going overboard to say that when we're involved in these things, they enslave us. And what makes it worse is that it doesn't just impact a part of our lives, it impacts our total lives. It impacts our thinking, our relationships, our finances, our health. It's impossible to compartmentalize and just say, you know what, I'm just going to be a jealous person and everything else is going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. Sin 
leaves us broken. Third thing the Bible tells us about sin is that we're all born into sin, and therefore we all must be born again. The doctrine of original sin um, is really found in Paul's writings in Romans. So I want to take a look at that real quick. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this about original sin. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. So collectively, we're sinners. But we're also sinners individually. Paul goes on, Romans 3 says, As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Romans 3, 23, many of us know these verse, for everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard. You know, when we set out and trust in our natural instincts, we end up in the same place as those in Judges chapter 17, where it says that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And Proverbs 21, 2 tells us the issue with that, and that is, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the way, but the Lord weighs the heart. Obviously then, sometimes the way that we think is right is not right. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all else. So it kind of brings us right back to Galatians where we have this selfish heart that keeps us going in the wrong direction, keeps us and prevents us from entering the kingdom of God. So the solution is found in John 3.3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, the people that originally heard that said, well, what are you talking about? Uh, how am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? They didn't quite get it. <laughs> they didn't quite understand that they were born with a sin nature, that they were born in disobedience to God, separated from God, and what they needed was to be born again in a way that they stand in a righteous relationship with God and not separated from God. But in order for that to happen, you have to recognize that there's an issue. And that issue is we're sinners. We all must be born again. And if we don't recognize this, then this pursuit that we're talking about really ends here. It ends the same way it ends 
for a British author named Karen Armstrong, who was a Catholic religious sister who turned liberal mystic. And here's what her words are. Jesus did not spend a great deal of time discoursing about the Trinity, our original sin, or the Incarnation, which have preoccupied later Christians. He went around doing good and being compassionate. Sounds good. In other words, we're just supposed to love each other. Hello? Didn't we just see that that's the problem? We don't love each other perfectly. We miss the mark. We fail. We can't do it on our own. The other thing that she misses is a big point is that, you know, Jesus went around doing good really for one major reason, for a greater reason. And that reason was that he wanted to show them that he could not only heal their temporary physical needs, he wanted to show them that he could heal their eternal spiritual need of being forgiven of their sins. This passage is so powerful. Matthew 9, Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. It's great that we live in a country that has freedom and that we can celebrate that freedom on 4th of July. But my friends, it's greater still that we can celebrate that we have freedom in Christ and that he has forgiven our sins and that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Our freedom in America is temporary. Our freedom in Christ is eternal. The Bible says in Romans that just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinner, sinners, and even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. That is what we celebrate. Christ's obedience to death on the cross so that we could be righteous, so that we could be in a relationship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you and we ask for your forgiveness because I know that we all go our own way at one time or another. We all think our way is the best. Our interests, our opinions, and sometimes we just 
put the truth aside. And Lord, you died to make us whole, to save us from that. And we thank you for that. We thank you for our freedom in you. In Jesus' name, amen.